Welcome back to the War Horse Podcast, Season 2, Episode 8. Coming to you absolutely ad hoc, extemporaneously from the shop in the middle of nowhere. Picking up on where we left off in uh, Episode 7. And making a few observations at some particular sort of generalized level of analysis to kind of reconfigure for myself and uh, for those interested what exactly we're talking about when we talk about the psychotechnology of Christ. It seemed to me that if we take two poles and we have a, an antinatalist, nihilistic completely pessimistic call it the negative pole on the one hand and then we take 100% pie in the sky universal salvation rock and roll mega church pure hypocrisy essentially um And we'll just call it total optimism. I think essentially, in this case, even though certainly in mechanistic and engineering terms, binaries are wonderful and we can get a lot of use out of them. And even in mentation, they can be essential. However, to extend the case out that, uh, as we've said in season one, compartmentalization as some type of sort of a stand-in for metacognition in terms of how we work, like how our brains work, instead of learning to naturally integrate the unconscious, subconscious, and deploy imagination in in a reliable fashion as would as we would apply it to adult problems i th- i really think this was the purpose of 
public education. To say that the Prussians went so far as to absolutely crush what kind of amounts to it doesn't even kind of, you know. I mean, if you take William Blake, um, who says something like, imagination is reality, then it, it wouldn't really be hyperbole to say that to crush that faculty would be to crush the human spirit itself or even to work towards human extinction. I'm not sure that all of that was entirely in the Prussian design, but it may just be that they didn't think that shit through entirely and they were um, policies and programs that were implemented by people virtually soulless themselves. And this little bit on binaries is to, is to say that there's something pretty similar about our two examples with respect to, say, Christ. If you got to pick one, sure, go with the, the optimistic but you don't have to pick one of those. The effort necessary to develop an individualized system of value, such as we've detailed in the entirety of this project, is pretty substantial. It's a pretty serious amount of effort it's going to require what the ancients the ancients had this way of making taboo somehow um, taboo as we think of it but somehow less stigmatized in terms of connotations with error or sin or dirtiness or in, in ineptitude, what have you. It was simply another ritual. It was like a negative ritual. I do not eat the fish or I do not eat the beef on this particular day. I never eat the pig. I never eat it. And we today hem and haw and wonder, well, was it? trichnosis and how do they know that that's incredible kind of missing the point there that there's an element of your individualized system system of value which is simply going to be your ability to say no I'm not going to drink. No, I don't put stuff up my nose. No, I don't go to 4th of July parties. 
no, I'm not going to publicly drag down other people unless they are celebrities or otherwise public figures, you know, some type of restrictions. simple observation that you can build this habit and it's of course freighted now with all manner of kind of obsequious pedantic sort of absurd and ridiculous added mod these added modules around that to I guess shore people up so that they can have boundaries which is easier to manage a system of habits, essentially. Self-chosen, and then you're responsible for them. Or the six by four spreadsheet matrix, which is only 60% accurate and can be interpreted properly by less than 2% of the public. I'm speaking here of something like the big five personality traits. This principle of elegance or simplicity parsimony tends me personally to favor on practical grounds fucking yellow jackets are coming after me I told you guys insidious pressure is mounting It would seem to me that um, you can sort of derive from this a pretty safe conclusion that again, whether egregoric, um, inertial, or drive, you know, driven by uh, diabolical agency and the cabal. You, we all are sort of wound out to this place And it's then by we say place because it is um, 
external and internal, the way the mold works, you know. It has this, these masks on the outside, and those masks are going to communicate with the other person's masks, and you will continue through life totally alienated. And um, on the inside, of course, soothed and uh, pacified by a series of lies pertaining to your own superiority. Um, and uh, whether that's insight, talent, what have you, there's that dinger again, boys. Got to make the donuts. Um, that mirrored quality of the mold is is affecting your inability to, what do you say, carve out, filter, discover, all of the above, arrive to an individualized system of value. And an individualized system of value is not going to adhere, let's say at all points, no way, with the consensus. And so this understanding uh, and say dexterity with the construction and the defense of boundaries as in, you know, and this is one of these things that is mirrored out certainly into um, what we call the external world. You know, it's an example where of, of what we're calling ultra nature. It's, you know, a principle that can be applied at many, if not every level of abstraction. There's nothing to say, of course, that at certain of these levels of abstraction, factors such as your own agency or your own sense truly does begin to dissolve or morph or aggregate with other, shall we say, beings or entities or intelligences. Who knows? That itself is a pretty interesting question because I think it would get into the nature of this thing into which we are born. Castaneda, of course, um, comes down on the fact that it's a predatory universe. And it, it definitely appears to be that way in many, many respects. Which brings us back to a real topic here. Christ. Miles Hollingworth in his, I would say, almost perfect book titled Ludwig Wittgenstein 
takes on this project of writing a sort of anti-biography. And it's an anti-biography in part because of its subject. And um, by that we mean it, it's almost as if the biography itself is presenting the thought of Wittgenstein as he may have himself about himself, if you follow. It's more than that, and it's not, it's not, a, it's not a breeze to read, but it's a pleasure to read, and it's um, absolutely, it's one of the best nonfiction books that I've ever read, that's for sure. It's a tour de force. Um, I can't, I can't really imagine a time when I won't want to read that book again to pull more from it. Along the way, we are familiarized together with the author, you know, we approach Wittgenstein's thoughts, his writings, as well as we can on Christ and the New Testament. And it seems to me that there were, of course, there's the, you know, if you don't like the war horse, you're not probably going to like, you might like, yeah, there's probably a, a wide uh, spectrum of, of readers that would appreciate Mr. Hollingworth's book. He has some other good ones too, but, um, There are places where the man is just simply speaking to me. He's saying things exact, precise. He's expressing thoughts that I've had that I maybe even haven't shared with anybody. Intuitions. And one of these is the notion that Christ is a form of guide. He's not the first, um, of course, to suggest this. You have the whole image of the shepherd and whatnot, which is a yet another example where what was probably a pretty good use of imagery and language to try and communicate an idea has more or less... How many people do you know who have ever been witness to the act of shepherding, of sheep herding. How many people have even seen a sheep in, you know, first world countries? So how much good does it say or do to, uh, you know, share the shepherd sort of analogy? I don't know. But we were going to say that Milton, Paradise Lost, 
refers specifically and capitalizes the word guide in reference to the Christ. If you go back to for uh, avid absorbers and subscribers who made it to set three and sets three and four in recent podcasts where we did this etymological uh, exercise and you see without really even piecing together complex linguistic units uh, you know that is to say make linguistic equations or sentences right without ever even approaching something like writing a sentence or saying a sentence just simply examining the meaning of the word um, reveals a, an inherent seemingly impossible to resolve pardon me I, it feels like a slipperiness to me. And um, my supposition for a long time has been that we kind of over... We managed to, I guess, override the... The phenomena where I say backpack and you have one image and I have another and we we both you know if you're with your buddy and you're always dealing with this object backpack it's it's never going to be an issue right you're going to know and that's probably a terrible example but we don't obviously know if I say backpack that we're thinking of the same backpack um, color, features, size, era, application. So without adding more of these little units onto that, and even then, if you are not familiar with those, even if you are, it does not mean that we still image in our minds the same thing. And so it's been my, I don't know, I guess intuition, you know, just a sense of things that the glue that really makes a lot of this possible, say outside of something like a podcast where you're probably driving or mowing the lawn, laying on the floor, and I too am more or less entirely engaged with you the screen the microphone and this abstract space that I'm pulling from bilocated into that you bilocate yourself into as well through the medium of the audio this is managed I think outside of these 
these direct sort of almost meditative um, forms of communication, mostly with body language, mostly with tone, gestures, and those gestures, those tones, all of these indications of meaning other than the, let's say, supposed definition of one word or another. Do not do not themselves really um, submit to something like a universal categorization scheme. If you take, uh, you know, two cats and you put them in a box and you watch them and they make noises, you can deduce a fair bit maybe from, you know, again, the tone, the facial expressions and all these things. If you're to do this with birds, right? It's going to be different. With humans, you have the cultural piece. You have an intelligence piece, which as we all know here, this is not kosher. We can't talk about that, but it's a fact. You know it's a fact, I know it's a fact. It's, it's actually, you know, pretty well understood that if you take somebody with 180 IQ you stick them with somebody with even 140 IQ, which is well into what you need to pick up the live wire of genius, which in my terms, again, is a, is a sort of admixed third thing. But um, was Richard Feynman a genius? I think so. IQ 125. Richard Feynman is actually going to have a tough time communicating with the guy with the 180 IQ. And this is, it seems to me, almost even more... You know how sometimes the exotic, exoticism, is that the right word? The exotic aspect of some interaction. If you meet a Russian dude on the street, and he's generally a friendly guy, it's actually going to be maybe more interesting. And in some ways, you're going to take more from it um, because of the, the difference. Even if you can't use English, you could do a trade. You could give directions. You could help him out. He could help you out. You can just see, oh, you got your foot stuck in uh, what's that thing that you lock the bike up to? Like your hitching post, you know, for your bike. You got your foot locked in that. Yeah, I can, I can help you, and I can communicate in this way to you. But if you notice, with maybe the difference between something closer, like. 115 to 130 
can be very pronounced because of this. There's not that boundary, this obvious, instantly respected boundary. Respect may be the wrong word, but um, in effect, that's what it, where you kind of arrive to. And uh, the studies, for whatever they are worth, seem to suggest that anything one order of magnitude or more is going to be almost unmanageable in terms of relating. If you go back to these, this idea of these two poles, you know, where you have the horseshoe theory riding high and strong here. But in the way that we visually flipped the corpus callosum of the dolphin, you know, asleep on the surface of the ocean, this imagery, we verticalize this. If you are to do something similar with the image of the horseshoe, you know, connecting these two disparate poles, and I'll set to, we will do some, uh, some toying around with something like this. Um, I wonder if we might find some more interesting, useful um, ways, imagery, which will then allow us to begin to make war on this apparent contradiction. Before we bounce out, though, while intelligence is intelligence and it's important, I'm of the belief, I'm not alone, though it's kind of a hyper ultra fringe notion. I've seen it a couple of times in my life here and there to say that there are spiritual castes. I'm interested in this episode to get down to, pardon me, some fleshing out of the seeming, <clears throat> what again James Bowery calls the eusociality, eusociality I think is is the proper term coming into effect in you know as we call it egregoric and I think this is the right the intuition here is right if we use the Bohmian uh, implicate order sort of imagery where you have this take you know you take a sheet of paper you fold it say three or you know three or four times lengthwise on itself and you realize that the distance 
between some dot that you make anywhere on this sheet to another dot that you make at the far other end of the sheet is compressed and made almost nothing. And then you unfold the sheet, of course, and now it's one dot is way on the other side of this sheet of paper. And he had this visual for how the universe and time might work. Pretty neat idea, in my opinion. And it goes a long way to at least begin to think about something like spiritual casts, but also uh, something like entities, non-human intelligence. So we'll take a break and uh, in set to pick up. So here's an idea. What if the Gnostic, we, we understand, right, that Gnosticism is considered a heresy, uh, at least in Orthodox terms. What most of the Orthodox don't know, of course, is that, you know, several of the first, uh, of the kind of original church fathers themselves seemed to agree with a fair bit of, shall we say, we can say like Gnostic doctrine. What they also don't seem to understand, and I didn't particularly really understand this when I got into it either, was that there was something like a massive, great, you know, plurality of opinions sects, modes of being in worship, hundreds, if not thousands, in one fairly small location, all calling themselves Christianity, all having some claim to the title. Well, the story goes that Again, forgive me if I'm, you know, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a biblical scholar. I'm not a, a historian even. But my basic general understanding is that it took several hundred years to kind of organize some consensus about these things and to arrive at... doctrine, you know, sufficiently elaborated to, to build these boundaries and defend against more or less to make sort of philosophical arguments, oftentimes based on revelation or the scripture or what have you, to bound this thing, which from a social organization standpoint makes a lot of sense. I've asked multiple priests, you know, what, what, what do you think the world was like 
prior to um, year zero? And the answer has been uniform. The answer is chaos. And I came to envision year zero as, again, uh, like a, in my mind's eye, right? My, my imagination, like a meteor, an asteroid impacting the earth, but impacting the timeline of humanity itself and the cosmos and so there's this massive divot and like an, you know an inverse mushroom cloud sort of rises in this circular form and the ripples go out and taper forward in time and back in time It seems to me that common, what William Blake calls, you know, nobody Christianity is Gnostic. It's, and it seems that orthodoxy made this heroic, um, You know, uh, to say historical is uh, putting it lightly. I mean, there's no words for it, this human achievement. The, the, you know, I'm talking about the explication and the philosophical thinking and arguments that went in from guys like Maximus the Confessor and, and many others, Gregory, to to put some words to what it is and insofar as they were able to through the apophatic reasoning and what have you argumentation transcendental argumentation conceive of existence as um, itself contingent entirely and constituted of God, you know, that we are in the dream of God. Seems to not only be correct, seems to have not only outdone all of the wizardry of science by, you know, 2,000 years or pretty close to it, I, I wonder, though, if something about the, the dogma carried forward with respect to Gnosticism is not totally helpful. If we say that Blake's version of the Noba Daddy, which seems to me a lot like the Sky Daddy, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a bearded... A large bearded man, a jolly old fat man, perhaps, or a big muscular man, up in the sky, sitting on a throne, 
and you dumb shits got to do what the king says or what the priest who may or may not be a totally corrupt shit heel. I mean, could be. But if you don't do what he says, you know, you're going to go to a lake of fire. Well, let's look at Blake's poem, The Everlasting Gospel. The vision of Christ that thou dost see is my vision's greatest enemy. Thine has a great hook nose like thine. Mine has a snub nose like mine. Thine is the friend of all mankind. Mine speaks in parables to the blind. Thine loves the same world that mine hates. Thy heaven doors are my hell gates. Socrates taught what Miletus loathed as a nation's bitterest curse. And Caiaphas, Caiaphas, was in his own mind, a benefactor to mankind. Both read the Bible day and night, but thou readst black where I read white. I gather that Blake in his time was considered a, ma uh, a major heretic. He's reinterpreting Milton, who is reinterpreting who knows what, orthodoxy at the least, but probably uh, other recursions. Blake definitely seems to conceive of the Nobodaddy sky god as the Gnostic Demiurge. So let me, so I don't, um, Demiurge. <clears throat> so when you get into this stuff, it's not as, it's not, even orthodoxy is not, there's not this boundary, right? There's a, there's a dogmatic, uh, pedagogical, pastoral set. There's a set of boundaries in these areas. And there does appear to be this fight back to the imaginative image of this meteor, you know, impacting total chaos with this molten um, load of order. There, we could understand, right, that um, it, it may be natural that given human nature, given finite resources, etc., there would be these small wars 
constantly fighting over the power of the symbol of Christ of the cross. The archons, the, not the archons, excuse me, the, the Gnostics themselves were not a uniform group. That, my understanding, is a catch-all phrase for folks who were doing more expansive interpretations on, um, on all of those other books that were eventually excised from the official Bible. So when you ask questions like, is Yahweh the Demiurge? Well, we have the, we have the conclusion, you know, that the church fathers have come to. So I, in my reverse apologetics for my apologetics now, um, I go back to this notion that the saints themselves, Father Seraphim Rose is not a saint, but he um, is, of course, widely beloved and um, probably a majority of Orthodox folks would be in favor of his being made a saint. My interactions with priests have led me to believe that that number would probably be at least halved uh, among, among the clergy. But he himself says, and he, he picks up, I gather that he picks up a lot of his thinking based on reading the prior saints. And that's, that's the way of the, the Orthodox monk and priest. But he, um, he has it, and many of the saints do, that the church itself will eventually be corrupted. And that, again, this, back to this uh, image of the tapering, the twin declining lines of chaos out of this peak moment of order. I guess we could say that at the precise moment that Christ was crucified and in if there was a pinnacle to that agony, maybe where he's supposedly calling on his father and at that same moment we're to understand that uh, the cosmos is being remade the hu humanity itself human nature my mm, conception is like okay so dna is is being re remixed now i tend to think that Whatever this trifold type of um, 
who is it that has it? You know, it's like screen, interpreter, computer. I forget now if it's Gerard or, or somebody else, but uh, what in, in recent episodes I'm trying to describe as what Hoffman calls the interface between subject and object, what is necessarily tied up with the spectrum of consciousness, unconscious, um, all the way up to whatever, super enlightenment, deified humanity. And, um, and here's, here's where this Bohmian image comes into play for me where if we are to conceive of this in some practical way whether they're archons or um, and we need, I, I'm driving to, to be towards more specificity here but the quit, we'll lay them out, right? DMT, Manted, um, low, lowercase g, gods, demigods. Who knows what else is in there? Ascended masters. There's, there's, you know, there are supposed to be like Obi-Wan sort of characters who have made the leap into a light body or... Uh, the spirit entire in this realm. This is the realm that LSD manufacturer and uh, mad scientist, psychonaut Nicholas Sand. This would, as I recall, be the second level where you're going to run into characters. Kalendi Lee describes he, he maps this territory I think with more detail at least he in his lectures gives more detail and has kind of a a more sophisticated way of viewing or, or um, describing this that the subatomic to travel and you know he, t he takes these massive doses of psilocybin 50 grams um, mind-blowing amounts just just the pile the, the it would be like three meals I think of psilocybin mushrooms and he he was not about like grinding it up and doing it in a milkshake he just chewed them so uh, he describes going into the subatomic to find, you know, the macro there. So he was sort of going into inner space, if you will, and um, exploring these newly revealed galaxies of space with 
And this is, this is what, if you've ever really, really tripped, the reason this is important is because that is how it is. You can see the galaxy and you can stand in awe and feel the wave of nausea hit you, or you can gird your loins and go in there and keep going and keep going. And at that point, I'm not interested in, you know, CERN. I'm not interested in being dictated to on high. I have no way to verify any of that shit. I don't care for that to live with that uncertaintism. And because my time is limited and yours is too, um, yeah, I'm more interested in the reports of some largely unknown African martial artist uh, <laughs> freedom-loving psychonaut from war-torn Detroit than I am in the you know, like filtered opinions of some milk toast, uh, Cambridge, Oxford, Harvard, whoever, PhD. You know, there are a few that are great, like Bernardo Castro is great. He worked at CERN. But if you've ever tripped, that that's the case. And you get to this point where Maybe that's as far as you can go. Maybe that's as far as you can go today. Maybe that's what the dosage does. Or maybe you arrived to some place. But you have to sort of acknowledge that there is a co-creation of something happening. And so if that's all internal, the question would be, what are you co-creating with? We aren't dolphins. The corpus callosum does not function this way. Though you can have genuine, not poor me, bullshit, victimhood, dissociative disorder, where you're just sort of making things up and getting a free ride or what have you. No. Tests will show that um, these are distinct personalities. One likes the ham sandwich. One is... Um, An adherent to Islam and, and sees this as haram. And so at that level, um, where you've gone into the subatomic, you've breached as that, you know, the Mandelbrot. You can watch these online for hours, stone cold sober. And you go in, and you go in, and you go in, and you go in, and you go in. And uh, when, when the Mandelbrot, you know, GIF or whatever is not on your screen, but when it's on, this is the screen of your mind in the dark, you do seem to, it is, it's, you arrive to a place where the subject and object, and I don't mean, I'm not talking about ego here. I'm talking about operations. What, what is in effect? If you're still hung up on losing your ego, I don't think you really get past. I don't think you can take 
you know, more five grams may, may very well be the limit for you. It may be way too much for you. I don't know. Some people in that field, you know, they're seeking bliss. They're seeking enlightenment, whatever that is. And so perhaps this, whatever this co-creative feature, vastly unexplored, you know, is this what Blake is talking about? That reality itself is imagination. That the human being without imagination, I think he would say, is living in hell, is living in a world ruled by the Demiurge. Well, you get there and it is as if this interface line, the boundary between things the terminology is tough to, or the, it's tough to know exactly what is happening. You've shed, have you woken up or have you, have you shed a series of illusions? We mentioned before that the tests seem to show that instead of, um, an opening of the valve, which used to be the common conception, this was, um, Huxley, I believe, thought that this, I think he probably coined this. It's actually the opposite. The valve is closing. And taken with some other little science factoids, this kind of makes more sense because psychedelics at the level of the physiology are mimicking a lot of the bodily responses to death. what exactly that is. I'm not sure we're going to get there in set two, but we may. So you kind of arrive, let's say, to the cathedral and you, you, you have a sense like, okay, maybe maybe it's the drugs. It's probably all of the above. Um, there's some indication though that you've reached kind of the outer limit. And so you take a moment to look around and as you return or begin to return or understand that you, you must return and you will, that is where, um, that implicate order concept would for me come start to come into play R reminder that this is you know if we get into the math it's it's much uh, much more difficult to to manage to apply to something other than uh, you know time travel or weaponry or what have you but If you folded this sheet and then you've, and that, but this is just simply a conception, right? 
folded the sheet and penetrated down, 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 down. The idea was that the mandala of certain Eastern religions, what have you, was a sort of um, encoding of a world almost. And you have analogs in the western side with the maze. The labyrinth. But there was a type of mapping that was done. So you could stare at this mandala for long enough and then enter it. And in entering it, meet its inhabitants. So we're at somewhere in this vast space that Nicholas Sand describes as level two. The outer edges going farther, you know, you begin to get into the cloud, whatever that is to him. If we're dealing with Uh, at the push-pull world, at the push-pull level, where you go out, you fucking put the check in the mail, and then you go back and make a sandwich. Sun comes up, big ball of fire, sun goes down. Ah, it's cool, I go to sleep. This block time consensus place. To experience um, something shocking like the vision of a tiny man tucked underneath some flowers looking at you or some winged creature or something that looks like a winged creature you know with fiery light on it darting behind some trees or some type of shadowy green-tinged horned or scaly or or, uh, hairy monster leaping, you know, in 50-yard bounds through the forest or some sort of... uh, orb moving in absolute defiance of so-called laws of physics to get around to understanding or describing and personally my attempt here is just to work out for myself and hopefully drag some of you guys along far enough that you you can chime in or help me out or but at that level relating it to 
the experience which I do have of the piercing of the subatomic to where these, you know, ah, through the galaxy, through the wormhole, through the atmosphere of some particular place, through some exquisitely ornate um, gothic cathedral slash like Islamic, you know, sort of tiling effect and then landing on something. Either way, and I believe this is where Bohm was going with this, whether you wanted to skip way out into space, as he conceived of it, outer space, or uh, time, I'm not sure quite exactly, you know, I think it was a standard dimensional perception of time, uh, or into something like the subatomic. This folding of the piece of paper and then passing through, I'm not so sure that there is, I, I'm really not that interested. I really don't care whether there's a technology that, you know, gravity, propulsion, ionized mercury, nucleizer, who gives a shit? Then what? You're, you're right back to Gerdell's problem. And orthodoxy, I believe here, is correct again. So you're going to drag human nature 240,000 light years away to do what? To hope that a so-called new world is going to rewrite human nature? Now, you know, in defense, perhaps the uh, journey itself is transformative. Okay, I can buy that. I have to buy that because I'm a believer in free will. We seem to be at a place, though, in the whole abstract intellectual field where all of the lines are devolving. Meanwhile, corruption is kind of at an all-time high, right? I think. And meanwhile, anhedonia, checking out, apathy, ebulia, these are all at all-time highs for sure. No question. Social let's say familial degradation, all-time high. I think we're pushing up to, yeah. So, for subscribers, I'm going to return with um, Jesus as the guide. We're at a point here in placing all these little chess pieces out on this big, 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 big oak table, slatted uh, film noir light, smoky, hitting it. Uh, we're at that point. So we'll start to move these 
various pieces around a little bit in uh, sets two and three and see where it takes us. For non-subscribers, get your ass over to Patreon. Drop me $5. Do you have $5? You pay me $5, I give you five dollars. And, um, or not, that's fine. For subscribers, appreciate you. Hang on and we'll be right back.